wherever there are shadows, there are people ready to kick at the darkness until it bleeds daylight. This is Bleeding Daylight with your host, Rodney Olson. Welcome to Bleeding Daylight. Please connect with us on social media to continue the conversation. You'll find links at bleedingdaylight.net. Your ratings and reviews wherever you listen to podcasts help others discover the inspirational stories of my guests on Bleeding Daylight. My guest today has released a book that follows the path of his life so far. As he'll tell you himself, it's not so much about an extraordinary life as it is about pointing to an extraordinary God. I'll introduce you in a moment. The title of the book, Ascent Crest Perspective, The Making of a Bamboo Camel, is anything but ordinary, but its author, Ross James, has had an anything but ordinary life so far. The book is a memoir reflecting on his years as a journalist, academic and researcher, as well as the personal battles he has faced. Ross has worked in many countries, including Australia, the Philippines and Pakistan. It's a great pleasure to welcome him to Bleeding Daylight today. Ross, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank you, Rod. Pleasure to be here. There's no way that we'll be able to cover everything you've done in a short conversation, and hopefully that means that a lot of people will grab the book to get the full story, but the word providence features throughout, and one definition of providence is an influence that is not human in origin and is thought to control people's lives, but you have a far clearer definition. Tell me about that. There are lots of references that contribute to the explanation of God as uh, providence in the Bible. And I really have come to, to feel what one of my colleagues actually has, uh, has said is that it's how we encounter God's sufficiency. That's the lowercase providence. And with, with God, you know, he cares for us day by day he provides for us day by day as we read in some of the psalms but then there's a point where we meet him as jehovah jireh the one who provides so we meet him as capital p providence that's how i like to think of it the 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 two different ways it's it's how we encounter his sufficiency but how we meet him as the one who provides jehovah jireh Let's head back to some of your earlier days. In your teen years, it seemed that your career path was already mapped out, but things certainly changed. What was that change in direction for you? I was meant to be a third-generation funeral director, and I grew up with that uh, understanding and desire and uh, eagerness to embrace it. Went across to the workshop in school holidays to help out making coffins and polishing the hearse and uh, even helping with uh, various other things. There came a point though after I left school at the age of 16, uh, things weren't going right. I began to sense that the funeral business was not for me and in part it was because Dad was uh, thinking of taking the business into directions that I felt uncomfortable with. And then in a way that I can only, I can only say it was Providence at work, I just uh, started, was listening as we did in the workshop, listened to the radio and uh, the local radio station, just got tired of hearing these announcers making the same silly mistakes. I thought, gee, I can do better than that. And I, that was all a part of moving away from the business. 
you think, I can do better than that. Where did your opportunity to work in radio then begin? (laughs) Well, I suppose, unfortunately, to start off with, at Radio 6GE in Geraldton, where I was raised as a boy and where the business was, And I say unfortunately because they said to me that uh, they don't take people in off the street. So uh, I just uh, plugged away and uh, annoyed a few people, I think, and the boss eventually got me in to do an audition tape and said, oh, yeah, that's great, we don't have a job, and the next day rang me to uh, offer a job. Unfortunately, I very quickly found out that it's quite easy to make mistakes as a radio announcer, especially in those days when you had uh, turntables with three different speeds and just the various other things you had to do. Unlike today where you've got computers with everything digitalised and you can just sit back and wait for you know one song to segue into another without touching anything in those days you had to do all sorts of you know magic tricks with your hands and dials and needles on records. And then fortunately because after a year I realised yeah I don't really like this but I like radio and that's when the opportunity came up to be trained as a journalist. And what was your intent with that training as a journalist? Was it just to explore a different area of radio? The understanding is that I was going to go back to Dad's work after five years, you know, basically begin to take over the business by the business off Dad. So the thing to become a journalist was really just an opportunity to uh, do something different in radio. I quite liked the idea of radio and the immediacy of it was both challenging but thrilling. You had to get something right the first time. By then, after that year, I found that I'd had a creativity that I did not know about, especially with words. So when the opportunity came to uh, learn to be a journalist, I loved the idea of being able to play with words and to be able to be a, a, a conduit between uh, you know, events that were happening at an audience and to translate those. And back in those days, you were in this town of Geraldton. For those who don't know Western Australia, it's north of Perth, so it's not a capital city by any stretch of the imagination, but it's not a a tiny town. Where did the career of being a journalist lead you out of Geraldton? In my absolute naivety, I was getting bored with radio, and I thought that I could go to uh, Bible college but I needed a job and the Bible College was in Perth, 400 kilometres away. So I wrote to the top rating radio station in Perth and and asked if they had a job as a mid to dawn announcer that I could do on weekends. And they came back and said, no, we don't don't like your voice as an announcer, but we would like to train you up as a journalist full time. And so I kind of thought, well, hang on, I thought I was going to Bible College, but now he's a full-time journalist job. And, you know, all those things that we discussed a moment ago came into, uh, into play. And so I decided to work as a journalist full-time on this top-rating radio station and go to Bible College part-time. One of the things that's essential for being a journalist is to have a wide interest in what's going on, in a little bit of history. And I guess that was your story, even from those younger years. You were interested in what was going on around the world, weren't you? Yeah, I've always had an innate curiosity for things and the broader picture for things. So when I was in years um, 9 and 10, I really uh, began to be affected by Martin Luther King and what was going on in in North America with the 
movement that he started and became uh, quite entranced with things that were happening or that had happened in India with Mahatma Gandhi and the whole peace movement there, Satyagraha and, and so on. So yeah, those things were, were taking place in the background and they had a connection with the uh, biblical background that our family and our faith community provided. Those were the things that were happening and I was always interested in reading and uh, Dad and I often fought over who would get the newspaper to read over breakfast cereal each day. I, I was interested in what was going on around me and I found, found also that uh, I tended to be asking questions that would often get me into trouble because people would accuse me of being a sticky big. That bothered me for a while but uh, it didn't stop me asking questions. Now, we're talking about the 70s at this stage, and another wonderful thing happened for you in the 70s, and that was that you met your wife, who has travelled the, the whole journey that we talk about in this book along with you. I've dedicated the very first chapter to Jill because the whole thing that I describe, even though she's not mentioned on many pages, but is centre on a lot of them, is that really my life only began when I met her. I asked her to marry me four weeks after we met, and uh, that took both of us by surprise. It took her a long while to, to decide whether or not it was, it was worthwhile saying yes. But yeah, it's been very important for Jill to be a part of it, partly because she has the temperament to be able to put up with a person like me, but mostly because of her faith in God and her utter desire to do what God wants in her life and so that made it easy for her to accept the fact that we couldn't have uh, biological children we adopted to help her to accept the fact that uh, we were going to places that were hard to live in where she had to give up a lot of freedoms and uh, put up with a lot of hardships to survive on a daily basis um, and uh, you know over, over, over months and then years. It would have been quite easy to settle down to a life of being a journalist in Australia, somewhere comfortable, but that wasn't the path that you took. What was it that caused you to think about leaving Australia, leaving the comforts here and travelling to other lands and, and working there? What led us to do this is that God pretty well tricked us, I think. <laughs> Jill married me expecting to be a funeral director's wife and she was happy about that. So there was about nine months before we were due to leave Perth and go back to Geraldton to resume work with Dad. And then we went to a birthday party and somebody was talking to me about journalism and so on and happened to mention this radio station which I'd never heard of on an island which I'd never heard of somewhere in the Indian Ocean and that they needed a journalist for six months. Jill and I went home and we really literally could not sleep that night. The next morning I got up and rang them to get some more details and wrote a letter to the head of the company in England because a friend of ours was leaving Australia that day to go to England and we thought well if it's so urgent we shouldn't post it because in those days you know as uh, mail took a long time to get anywhere. We gave the letter to her and by the middle of the week we got a phone call from England saying we we're really interested. Turns out the organisation was Far East Broadcasting Company and the islands were the Seychelles where they broadcast on shortwave transmitters into South Asia and the Middle East and West Africa, East Africa sorry. 
So that's how we ended up in the Seychelles and we were just going there for six months and then come back home. But two weeks after we got there, I was called into the um, director's office and he said, ah, the journalist that you've come to hold his fort and keep his chair warm, he's decided he's not coming back. Can you please stay for another two years? That was when we had to really pray, seek God's direction. And there was a very uncomfortable telephone call between the Seychelles and Australia where, you know, I just said to Dad, look, could we extend our time? And he said, no, I've, I've got to make a decision now and I need you to. So we really felt at peace in saying, all right, I won't go back to the business. We'll just wait and see what God has for us. The rest was a step-by-step uh, leading and uh, process. Eventually you did return to Australia. What did life hold for you then? Well, a massive surprises uh, because we had been asked to go to India after Seychelles and work with uh, the Indian group there for a while. And they liked us so much um, and we came to feel that we should return there. So we came home to Australia expecting to be here for just a year while we packed up our things and raised missionary support and then went back to India. But within a few months we found that that wasn't going to be. Uh, Things just didn't work out with uh, FEBC. I got a job with Graham Mabry on uh, Nightline. Again, walked into that in a way. Uh, So for two years there, but we were always in preparation for going back overseas. How or when, we did not know, but we knew that we were not staying home. In that two years at Nightline, we were able to adopt two girls. And then in 1983, Curtin University phoned me to ask if I'd go there and become the founding news editor of a uh, community radio station, which would then be training journalism students in radio, radio news. So I did that and I said I'd only be there for a year because I feel that something's you know, going on. And in all of that, uh, I got the opportunity to go into a master's degree program, which was pretty odd for me because I'd left school at the age of uh, 15 in, or 16 in year 10, hadn't even completed year 12 and secondary school uh, leaving certificate. And I was lecturing at university in journalism and didn't even have a bachelor's degree. I was ever so grateful to be offered the opportunity to do the uh, master's study, the advanced studies, because it introduced me to the whole area of health promotion and community development. And I just came to realise right there and then that that's what I've been doing all of my broadcasting life, which is looking at things going on and trying to use media in such a way as to bring about change to make lives better for communities. And of course, we're very conscious of the fact that this is supposedly a career that you've just fallen into and suddenly you're lecturing in it. (laughs) And if we go back to the title of the book, Ascent Crest Perspective, The Making of a Bamboo Camel, You talk about Ascent as being that preparation time. So this is all part of a preparation. What's it actually preparing you for? Well, at the time, I didn't know, um, but it was, was, it's really the how and, uh, or at least the when and the what and, and, and where of going somewhere. And then what it was preparing me for, I finally realized, was what the second part of the book addresses, which was 
another 20 years of the, the purpose, the clarity and the purpose. So in the first part, the ascent of preparation, it was the when, where and what. In the crest, in the next 20 years, it was the why, why the preparation was necessary. And that was when I founded an organisation, Health Communication Resources, that became an agency that helped missions and churches in developing countries to engage more with their local communities through media. And some of the outcomes were very clearly health and community development oriented, but the main thing that we were aiming for is where Christian communities were able to engage in strategies and use media in such a way alongside of community members that would normally ostracize them or dislike them, distrust them in some way. And by working together, they began to develop collaborative relationships and a a range of freedoms to be able to worship together the Christians and to be able to live a little bit more safely and uh, securely in those situations and be able to be a witness to the new life in Christ that uh, they had not been able to to do before. So that was really what the preparation was for. And I guess that's why I just went through this whole thing of entertainment, radio announcing, news gathering and analysis, and then working in different cultures, having to think about ways that messages would mean different things to different people. And it all pulled together for that 20 years of certainty and purpose. And we see a lot throughout scripture of God calling for us to right the injustices. And I guess that that was really at the heart of that young boy who had an interest in the social issues of the day. And I imagine that that would have continued to inform some of what you were doing at this stage. Well, really, yeah, because we would, and I'm just in my head, I'm thinking of uh, two different situations which were very much anti-Christian and where we were able to go in there and talk to the Christians, what are your problems? We then go to people of other faiths and other ideologies and, and ask, what are your difficulties with each other? And then begin to work our way, our way through those. In many cases, we did have to work to right wrongs and we did have to come up with strategies that would help people who felt that they didn't have a voice to be able to go to their uh, community leaders or whatever and say, you know, what you're doing is really wrong, then change could come about. And one of them, if I can just give a little story, one of them is is just so simple but so instructive. Uh, One community was given quite a lot of money to build some, uh, some latrines, some toilets, and the money went to the community leader. The community leader was suddenly able to afford to buy some cows. We kind of knew that this was going on in the background, but in some of these societies, you can't do any investigative journalism and call people out. You can't do a, a 60 minutes or a, a four corners in, in these sorts of areas. You've got to be really, really careful. We were able to work with some of the people from that village to learn how to do interviews and they use their cultural sensitivity and their cultural knowledge to go about calling out their leader in a very culturally appropriate way. And so this lady who had said to us, 
over a number of months. I'm just amazed that you're giving me an opportunity to do this because people have always thought that because I was illiterate, because I can't read and I can't write, they always thought that I was stupid. You've come along and you've shown me how to use a handheld digital recorder and I'm finding that I'm able to ask questions and talk to people. So she goes up to the community leader one day and, you know, culturally appropriately says, uh, you know, wonderful job that you're doing as cultural as, as our community leader and we like this and we like that. And how about your cows? Tell me about your cows. And so the community member goes on and says how much money he's making because of the cows and all the benefits to his family because of the cows. And you know, this lady says, that's absolutely wonderful. You're so lucky. And then she says, so what's ever happened to that money that we got a couple of years ago to build the toilets? Because I noticed, you know, in the last two years that the toilets haven't been built. And they've just been talking about the fact that this guy had had these cows for two years. He said, oh, 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 yes, we, we, we will get that done. Within a few weeks, the cows were sold and the toilets were being built. So <laughs> it just, it's just stuff like that, you know? It doesn't take a lot to think through these things. It just, you know, you just got just to work with the flow and look at the dynamics and so on. And so, yes, the whole sense of social justice that I'd grown up with uh, in the beginning and began to admire and have a sense of, uh, began to feed into strategies that were helping other peoples to be able to, you know, amplify their own voices. They knew what they wanted to say, but they didn't quite know how to say it. So your job was really to empower local people to undertake what they needed to undertake, rather than just coming in and saying, well, I'm here, I'm from the West, I know everything and I'll do this for you. You're actually empowering them to take action. Empowerment and multiplication was really the whole thing that we were embarking on and the organisation uh, developed before I, I retired, I developed the Nagot offices in the UK which is working on some excellent programs throughout Asia and um, Africa and a whole organisation in Pakistan which again is just doing amazing stuff in uh, Pakistan. And Pakistan is one of the places that you went, and it wasn't particularly a safe place to be. Help me understand what was going on for you at that time. We were in the Philippines for the People Power Revolution of 1986, and the seminary that I was teaching at was a kilometre away from a triangle of television stations that were being fought over in order to control the airwaves and control the communication and therefore control the narrative. We were hearing all kinds of things going on, you know, you know, gunshots and tanks rolling down the street, attack helicopters coming down right over the seminary to shoot at snipers in a, a TV tower just down the road, bombings and so on. So when we arrived in Pakistan, the very next day, a massive ammunition dump exploded, an ammunition dump that the CIA had set up to store weapons that they were providing for the Afghan Mujahideen who at that time were trying to kick the Russians out of Afghanistan. And so they had all sorts of things there, stinger missiles, you name it. And nobody knows how, but the whole thing blew up. And there were uh, bodies being thrown into the air, entire trucks were lifted into the air. We were 12 kilometres away, missile casings being thrown across uh, the roof of our house. We could stand and look and see 
a ball of fire and then a puff of smoke and you could count some seconds and the the gusts of wind from that explosion would then come through this is 12 kilometers away and waft the curtains of the house that we were in i eventually went around and uh, spoke to quite a lot of christians to find out their experiences and the miraculous stories they could tell of being saved from death are astonishing so I was able to capture all of those interviews and uh, put them into a book which was sold for a local drug charity in uh, Pakistan. We got caught up in that because the radio studio that was owned by uh, a Christian organisation was only about 300 metres away from this ammunition dump. And nobody knew the ammunition dump was there. There was just a massive wall around uh, this great big area and nobody knew. But all the houses in that 200 to 300 metres between the ammunition dump and the studio, all the houses were flattened just by the blasts. The studio itself was uh, really badly damaged, so the project that I was about to start on was not able to begin from there. We had to make other arrangements. The secret police were then combing the area, and they came upon what they said was a foreign radio station and international politics and suspicions and conspiracies being what they were and probably still are in those days, it had to be an American spy radio station. So the government set up an inquiry to try and find out what this American spy radio station was doing so close to an ammunition dump. There was no logic in thinking, well, hang on, the CIA were actually providing the weapons to be in this dump, you know, why would we be worried about an American radio station? But it wasn't an American radio station, it was a legitimately owned recording studio by a Christian organisation that was properly registered in Pakistan, but nonetheless, the potential inquiry was going to draw attention to a lot of activities that Christian broadcasters were doing in Pakistan, which were really quite dangerous. So we were quite concerned, and then I just uh, was reading the Bible one day, and I just felt this immense peace come over me that everything would be all right. And the very next day, General Zia uh, dismissed the government for a whole range of things, and that inquiry just uh, went away. Then President Zia got killed in a uh, bomb explosion himself. Um, a national election was called, and Benazir Bhutto came back from England, from uh, where she was um, exiled to, and she became elected as the first female president or prime minister of a, a Muslim country. During that period, there were quite a lot of bombings and attempts to create community unrest and uh, uh, there was a lot of things happening and I just happened to be in a hairdresser's one day and a bomb went off about 10 metres away from where I was sitting and you know, knocked us unconscious and destroyed a whole part of the shopping centre. And You know, there were all sorts of things that were happening uh, at that time that uh, were, you know, could have been quite concerning in terms of our safety, but Jill and I had a sense of peace about being there and we were able to you know work our way through those without any any angst or tensions or any uh, you know trauma i'm sure that having that peace that god brings that goes beyond our understanding because the understanding is that the place is dangerous but i'm sure that there would still be a toll that this is taking on you talk to me about that what was what was the effect that all of this was having on you personally I wasn't aware of things 
personally, as in, gosh, something's going on here. But when we got back to Australia, after having been in Pakistan for five years and in the Philippines for two years, things began to unravel and uh, I just began to not cope with life all that well. I then began to see that in the Philippines there had been an immense amount of stress associated with the academic program that uh, I'd been running. And then in Pakistan there was quite a lot of tension and stress with things that were going on with the project, uh, which by the way was doing some amazing things in terms of God's kingdom, but nonetheless it's not always easy, Rod, to work with Christians. I'm sure. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure you've never come across that. Never. <laughs> I'm positive I'm the only person in the whole world who's experienced that. <laughs> there were there were tensions, and when I got back home, I began to realise there was something wrong with me, and eventually. Uh, I was able to uh, get some help and be diagnosed with clinical depression, which I can trace going back to uh, even just before I I went to the Philippines. So throughout that entire period in the Philippines and Pakistan, there were things that were happening to me that I just, you know, couldn't really recognise. But I now realise that, you know, my irritability with people and my short-temperedness and uh, so on was actually pretty well managed in a way clinical depression but when I got back to Australia it just all boiled over and the problems really began personally for me. Once that was diagnosed was there some kind of a relief as you started to understand ah this is what's been going on for me? Yes because uh, I was put onto medication within a couple of weeks uh, that medication worked. Jill noticed it she even wrote to a few friends you know ross is a changed person i was pleasant to live with i gotta say here before i go on though you know my book does detail this quite deeply uh, because by this time after getting back to australia i'd begun traveling internationally a lot i had been keeping diaries or journals and uh, as i began going through my 40 years of journals began to just see a whole range of things that were happening admittedly in in pakistan too and in the Philippines that I've written down. And I'm just astonished at the depths of despair that I had sunk to without realising then that something was going on. So when it came to being diagnosed and, and, and I had medication, it was something that was different. And I began to sense that God had really given me it as a gift because I needed to depend on him to get through a lot of the, you know, human kind of feelings and responses, reactions to things that that I would make. So that's really what happened is that uh, the medication made a massive difference and in doing that it made a massive difference in the way that, that I looked at myself spiritually and instead of hating myself and feeling bad about myself so much began to see, well, you know, God God gave a thorn in the flesh to Paul and Paul regarded that as a gift in case he got too clever about himself and I reckon that's what he needed to do to me as well. So it didn't bother me that I had clinical depression and I was able to then and still am able to speak about it quite openly because it's just something I think that God said, you need this, you're going to have it. And um, that's the difference it made to me. 
you've kept journals for a long time throughout your life and I guess being someone who likes to take note of what's going on around this is just something that would have come naturally to you but when was it that you decided that these journals that you had built up over years should be put into a book? People had been asking me or telling me, uh, suggesting to me for some time that I should write down my experiences because, quote, unquote, you've had such an interesting life, you've had so many experiences that many of us have never had. And I genuinely thought, I don't think so. There are a lot more people, especially people that I've worked with, and I talk about those people in the book who live in really difficult situations in Pakistan, Nepal, the Philippines, Mongolia, uh, Indonesia, you know, those, those people have got real stories to tell. So I kind of didn't feel that I was anything special. But eventually it got to the point was thinking, oh, okay, maybe I could. So I'd, I started to write the, uh, the when and the where and the what. And I did that out of memory. So I went back into my journals to then uncover details to find out, you know, what I'd gotten wrong and so on and so forth. And that was all I had intended to do. But as I began reading through those journals and letters that we'd written home and missionary newsletters, I began to see patterns emerging. It was only then, only then, that I realised that there was more to the narrative. Because I just thought I could write a very simple narrative of my life, you know, did this, did that, here's what happened. Uh, but then I began to have to ask myself, why did this happen in this way? And God really was able to bring into my mind all of these themes that started to make sense, but I didn't quite know what to do about it. And that's when I went for a walk on the Bibbulmun Track, which is an iconic world-class backpacking trek, 1,000 kilometres. I was able to then think about these things and gain a real sense of perspective. And so I came back and I was able to sit down and divide up the book into the three parts of Ascent, 20 years of preparation, crest, the 20 years of certainty and purpose, what uh, I was able to do, what God called me to do as a result of the 20 years of preparation. And then the whole section on perspective, which was helpful in pulling it all together to deal with. And the big question was, you know, if I was depressed for all those years, how on earth was I able to get through all of that? Because, you know, I can't have been a nice person those themes that came through of being designed in a certain way and uh, the anchorage that God gave me, the anchors that God gave me to keep me on track in different ways. And then the big revelation to me was the whole sense of being steadfast and how how he kept me to be focused on on a goal, even though there were other things going on in my life. It was that steadfastness that was was the, uh, the thing that kept me going. I need to ask about the making of a bamboo camel. Tell me about that. Oh, Rod, you got to buy the book. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have, and I've started reading it. I, well, I don't, just... go, don't go to the last four pages. It's like one of those detective novels. You know? if, you want to know, if you want to know if the butler did it, then, well, go to the last pages, but it'll spoil the first bit. No, just, just, just for your ears alone and nobody else's. Um, <laughs> this is one of the themes that came through. It's just really interesting. I was kind of you know, trying to answer this big question. How, how on earth did I manage in all these years? And as I was reading through the journals of the Seychelles, just 
there I wrote about how fascinated I was with bamboo, how versatile it was, how the social wire could use it for anything, for furniture, for fish traps, for making liquor, for, you know, a whole bundle of things. Then when we went to Pakistan, I was thoroughly fascinated with the camel and just the, the loads that camels could carry and the difficulties that they could face in the harsh environments that they walked in. And you know, I'd begun to learn a lot more about the camel in Pakistan, the, you know, the number of eyelids they had that uh, were uh, you know, there to protect their eyes from dust and you know, the way that they uh, were built to prevent moisture from too much moisture escaping through their mouth and you know, this kind of stuff. There's just a lot of things, the way their hooves were made. Uh, to cope with the soft sand. As I was going through trying to, you know, reading through my journals, I began to see that, and, and as I was dealing with this whole thing of steadfastness, I began to see that I was a lot like bamboo and I was a lot like the camel, certainly with the camel ornery and, uh, you know, a bit bad tempered, but I had a lot of capacity to deal with very difficult situations and to come up with solutions that were flexible and were able to be applied in those difficult situations where perhaps other people would have been tested maybe. And that's where the whole flexibility of the bamboo came in. It can get blown about a lot by the wind, but it doesn't necessarily lose its rooting. It's able to bend and uh, so on and be, be uh, employed and deployed in so many different situations. So from there it became quite simple. I'm a bamboo camel. And uh, with all of the perhaps strengths of a bamboo camel, but all of the weaknesses as well, because there are weaknesses with bamboo, there are problems with camels. And I just began to sense that, well, if God was going to make me uh, a flexible but ornery uh, bamboo camel uh, in order to be steadfast and focused on, on something, then I'm happy with that. I'd rather you know, be uh, a person who's kind of a lot nicer and so on in, in, and clever in, in other ways. But, you know, if God wanted me to be to be that, then that's what I'll be. I'm, I'm happy to have got enough of what providence needs to help me to be useful for the kingdom. And that's that I'm satisfied. I must say, it is a great read. I'm partway in so far and really enjoying your great ability to tell story and to take us on that journey. So it's certainly a book that I'd recommend. If, if people are looking to grab hold of a copy, where should they go? In Australia, they can go to Coorong. In other places, you can go to Booktopia and uh, order it from, uh, from those places. I will put links in the show notes at bleedingdaylight.net so that people can grab hold of it. But Ross, it's been great to share just a little bit. And as I say, this is only barely touching the surface. The book's a great read. I'm sure that people will love reading through that and getting an even greater insight to the things that you've done throughout your life. But really, as you continue to point towards God in all of it, I just want to say thank you for your time today on Bleeding Daylight. Great. Thanks, Ron. All the best. Thank you for listening to Bleeding Daylight. Please help us to shine more light into the darkness by sharing this episode with others. For further details and more episodes, please visit bleedingdaylight.net.